Dear Father, as we come before you this morning, God, we have an opportunity to hear from your word, and we're going to be talking about relationships, God. And as Phil brings the word to us, and you put words on his heart and mind to share with us, God, open our ears and hearts that we can receive them and make sense out of the things that are being said. And also, God, that first of all, our relationship with you would be right and then it would trickle down our lives to the other people that we're around, and they will see us as Christians, uh, living like Christians, living in a way that uh, people would say they're serious about uh, their faith. So help us in that, and thank you for your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. About a year ago, I was studying through the Gospels, and I stumbled across something that I had never seen before, or at least never realized before. I don't know why that is, but I had never realized this. I wasn't just studying through the Gospels, I was specifically studying the life of Joseph and Mary. Now, we spend a lot of time looking at Mary's life, and she has captured people's attention from the moment they first heard about her. In fact, there are religions that build a lot of doctrines around Mary, but they don't spend much time looking at Joseph at all. When Tina and I were in the Holy Lands, up in the region of Galilee in the city of Nazareth, there is a lot that is said about Joseph. You go to a place that they suppose to be his carpenter shop. You go to another place that they believe Joseph was buried. There's just all kinds of things about Joseph there. And it really did capture my attention and caused me to want to study his life. And so a year ago, that's what I was doing. As I was going through scripture, I began to realize some things that most of us know about him. He was a master carpenter, which means this in the Bible, by the way. He was not just a master with wood. He was also a master with stone. Wood came at a great price. So for a master carpenter to gain that title, he had to also be very familiar and very accomplished with the working of stone. We have it in our minds that Joseph sat in a little carpenter shop building chairs with baby Jesus at his feet. But the reality of it is he was probably out building buildings, building houses. And he wasn't just doing it out of wood. He was also using stone. Not only was he a master carpenter, but he was also a man who loved the Lord. That is evidenced in the fact that when an angel came to talk to him, he wasn't startled. He wasn't surprised. He was familiar with the things of God. So we know that about him. Most people believe that he was involved in Jesus' life until Jesus reached the age of 13. When he was at the temple or in the synagogue and he was reading from different things, everyone believes that Joseph was still there. But then he kind of falls off the page. Tradition says that he died. Tradition says he passed away. It does not say how. It does not say when. All we know is that Joseph, the father of Jesus, disappears. He was the earthly man that God himself chose to raise his child. He was a special man. One of the things that I was looking for in Scripture, though, were quotes that come from him. I wanted to hear some of the words of Joseph. There are none that exist. There is not one word of Joseph recorded in the Bible. Nothing that he says. I encourage you to go digging. See if you can prove me wrong. Think about it real quick. Can you think of any one thing that Joseph is credited with having said? Probably you can't. In fact, I would venture to you, it's impossible to. Because the Bible records nothing that came from his mouth. Now think about this. God looked at him and said, I want you to raise my child. You would think that that was a pretty prominent position. 
There were other people that he wanted to have start his church. They're quoted all the time through the New Testament. But Joseph, not one word. Now, maybe that's because he just wasn't a quotable person. That may be the case. Nothing ever came out of his mouth that anybody wanted to write down. Makes me feel a little bit better as a father because I've noticed that there are no scribes following me around to grab hold of the gems that come out of my mouth either. So Joseph and I are kind of in a a realm together. But there is nothing recorded in Scripture that he said. That's interesting to me. It really is. Because the Bible does give us great insight into who this man is. I want to take you to the Gospel of Matthew, the first chapter. I'll show you one of the places in Scripture that says the most about him. This is where we learn a great deal. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now I want to spend just a moment or two, in fact, really the rest of this message, doing what Alistair Bagg would not refer to as grabbing hold of low-hanging fruit in the Bible. The things that we are going to reach for will require you to reach. And as you reach up into the tree of Scripture, you're going to pick some fruit that is kind of hard to digest. Low-hanging fruit is the stuff that we can grab hold of, take a bite of, and it's real easy to handle. Some of the stuff we're going to look at today, you've got to stretch for it. And as you stretch, you have to be willing to be stretched. Now let's just jump right into that. We'll start picking some of the high fruit from the Word of God. Go back to to verse 19 with me. In my Bible, it reads like this. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. There are some translations of the Bible that read like this. Because Joseph, her husband, was a just man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. That word just actually finds its meaning from this word. This is in the Greek and Hebrew language. Now, you can look at that and think to yourself, how in the world do you pronounce a word like that? It would be like this. And I would pronounce it for you, but I have absolutely no idea how to do that. When you put the consonants together like that, you move the vowel around, it just messes me up. Julie Brossman last night found a website that you can go to and type in words from different languages, then click on a button and it will audibly tell you how to say that word. So you can talk to Julie later if you want to know how to do this or how to say this word. But here's what this word means in the original languages. It speaks of a person who knows God and loves God and walks very closely with God. That would be a definition, a description of Joseph. Now that's not surprising to us because of what God asked him to do. It makes sense that Joseph would have known God and loved God and walked very closely with him. 
The implication of it in today's world would be this. He was the equivalent of an elder or a deacon or a longtime Sunday school teacher, somebody whose faith was very evident. It was very visible, very public. As a result of that relationship with the Lord, I think Joseph probably had a firm understanding of something that his son would say years after he was born. But it was evident in Joseph's life before the birth of Christ. Let me show you what those words are. We're going to go in the book of Matthew to chapter 22, starting in verse 34. Here's what's happening. The Sadducees have been trying to trip Jesus up. Everybody was trying to trip Jesus up. They wanted to spring a trap on him. So they had tried to get him to basically denounce the Ten Commandments. Jesus wouldn't do it. When the Sadducees gave up, the Pharisees kicked in, and they started trying to spring the exact same trap. Listen to this, chapter 22, verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, because Joseph was a just man, and following the word that we just saw, the implications of it, we're fully aware of the fact that he was the kind of man who would have known and been very familiar with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He also would have been familiar with the Shema, recorded in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. The first commandment that Jesus listed, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind, comes directly from the Shema. It comes right out of the Torah. That would have been easy for Joseph. And it was evidenced in his life again when the angel came to him. He wasn't shocked. He was familiar with the things of God, maybe even expecting the very presence of God. But that second commandment, this one's really interesting. A lot of us just wish it didn't exist in Scripture, but Joseph lived it. He knew what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the second greatest commandment, and the two go hand in hand. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1, you find that when Joseph and Mary were together, some people would tell you they were engaged, other scholars would tell you they were married. What we know is that they had not been physically together yet at that point. When Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he knew that it was not by him. He had every reason in the world to be very mad. By Old Testament law, he could have drug her into the, the center of the city and had her stoned or had her flogged. He could have driven her out of his life. He could have gotten rid of her publicly and violently. But the Bible says he had it in mind to divorce her quietly. He understood what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself. The second commandment was already attached to the first in his life. So Jesus later on would actually tell everybody, that's how you're supposed to live. And we can hear those words come out of his mouth and think to ourselves, if there was any way to erase them from the Bible, we would. If, if we could just take Matthew chapter 22 and tear that little strip out and throw it away, that's what we would love to do. That's what we long to do so that we don't have to try to live by that commandment. But because we can't do that, then we start arguing with God. We might say things like this, Jesus, it's really easy for you to say things like that because you don't live next to the people that I live next to. You don't have to live within the confines of my property lines. 
we begin to quibble about this passage trying to boil it down to an issue of geography, that this is only about the people that we live next to. And when people ask Jesus about that, he changed their vision. He let them know that neighbor doesn't just mean the people that live next door or across the street. Neighbors are everyone that crosses your path in life. That's who Jesus was talking about, not just your physical property lines, but every person that crosses the path of your life. That means your husband, your wife, your parents, your children, aunts and uncles and cousins, the people that you work with and the people that you work for, casual acquaintances that you have made. That speaks of the people that are are standing in line at grocery stores with 25 items in their cart in the express lane that says, without any doubt, 10 items only. That's who Jesus is talking about. If you're going to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, you have to love those people too, as hard as that is. He's talking about the people driving down the road in front of you, talking on their cell phone, not paying attention to anything that's going on. He's talking about the people that you work with that love to point out to you all of the mistakes that you make. He's talking about the boss that you work for that is always willing to belittle you in front of everybody else. Jesus says you have to love those people too as yourself. You even have to love the difficult people. Boy, it'd be nice if that passage didn't exist in Scripture, wouldn't it? It'd be nice if that command wasn't there, but it is. And I would venture to you that it is there in the realm of difficult people because God wants to know what we're going to do with our faith. This is one of those points where the faith rubber hits the faith road in our lives. What are you going to do with difficult people? How are you going to handle them? It's easy enough to say that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your strength. But what about your neighbor? Can you love them as well? That's a little more difficult. Within the realm of modern Christianity, we have gotten to a place where we want to measure our walk with the Lord based on a list of rules and regulations. We want to be able to say that we've been in church every time the doors are open, that we give every time the offering plate is passed, we go to Sunday school, we're involved in a small group, we do all the things that we're supposed to do when we're supposed to do them. We've even been on short-term missions trips, therefore we are righteous individuals and everything is fine in our lives. But that is not how Jesus says he wants to measure his influence within us. That doesn't exist at all. In fact, that's not even a new concept. Even though within modern Christianity, we've looked at that list and we've boiled it down to make it even a a little easier to swallow by saying things like this. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't chew, and I don't date girls that do. That's the list of righteous living within Christianity. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't dance, I don't chew, I don't date girls that do. Well, back in the New Testament, there were a group of people that were still trying to live by those same lists. They were referred to as the Judaizers. People that came into Christianity out of a Jewish background. Within the Jewish faith, lists were everything. Everybody lived by them. You had to do everything according to the law. Well, when grace was preached, when grace entered the church, when grace gave birth to the church, people with a Jewish background said, we want to accept salvation by grace. That sounds wonderful, but we still think everybody ought to have to do these things that are on our lists. Lists make people comfortable. Lists are familiar. 
Lists are the, the birthplace of piety. Lists are the very things that allow us to feel better and bigger than other people. So the New Testament writers had to say, your lists have no place in Christianity. Forget your lists. And that is still true today. Your lists have no place within Christianity. Forget your lists. Jesus says it boils down to this. You love God and you learn how to love other people. And that's how I will know my influence, Jesus' influence in your life. How are you doing with other people, particularly the difficult people? I would take it up a step and say this. Jesus is not interested in what you have to say. He really isn't that interested in, in seeing what you have to sing in heartfelt worship. And Jesus is not interested in watching you live by lists. What Jesus is really interested in, in determining his influence in your life, is how you handle other people in your life. The Bible actually lays it out pretty plainly. I like the way it, it is said in the translation of the Bible called the message. Go with me to James chapter 1. I'm going to read from, for you from that other translation, the message. Eugene Peterson put it together. It is just his way of, of reading Scripture. Tina said yesterday, the message is a great thing to read beside your other Bible. It's not a translation to study the Bible from, but it does give some great understanding at times. This is James chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Anyone who sets himself up as religious by talking a good game is self-deceived. This kind of religion is hot air and only hot air. Real religion, the kind that passes muster before God the Father, is this. Reach out to the homeless and loveless in their plight and guard against corruption from the godless world. It all boils down to how you handle yourself with other people. It all boils down to how you deal with everybody else that crosses the path of your life, including the difficult folks. Now, you might want to say, preacher, that is so easy for you to say because you don't have to deal with the people that I have to deal with. You're a preacher. Nobody's difficult in your life. Ah, that is so not true. Preachers wrestle with this issue. Elders wrestle with this issue. Leaders in the church wrestle with this issue the same way everybody else does. Here's some insight for you. I have people that make it their weekly mission to try to catch me in a mistake. And they will do everything that they can possibly do to try to hear it, find it, and then reveal it to me. There is one person that believes that if they have not made contact with me by noon on Monday to tell me how I messed up, then they have disappointed God. Those are difficult people. There are other people in my life the same way there are people in your life that are just contrary to everything that you want to believe or say. I could say the sky is blue and there are people even within this church that will say, nope, the sky is red. Preacher says it's blue, I'm saying it's red. That's just the way they approach life. Now the difference possibly between, uh, between preachers and other folks is we actually have a pulpit where we can stand up and say things like this. People that do that are joy suckers. They take everything out of your life. They really are. And everybody has to deal with them, but God wants to see how you do it. He wants to see how you handle those situations. It is a test. It is a test of your faith, the same way as a test of my faith. Now, I'm one of those people that believes the Bible gives us insight into everything that we have to deal with. And if God asks us to do something, he's going to equip us to do it. So if you'll go with me to the book of Romans, I'll show you how we're supposed to handle difficult people. 
Romans chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes these words. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that is great teaching. Right there in the middle of it, did you catch this? Verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Now there it is, boiled down. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. That is tucked away in the middle of 25 different points that the Apostle Paul gives us for dealing with difficult people. Did you catch all 25 of them as we went through there? Probably not. As we read that, we will read it from beginning to end, and we don't just dissect it the way we should. But if you will dissect the passage we just read and lay it out piece by piece in front of you, what you will find are 25 different points for dealing with difficult people. Let me show them to you this morning. I sat down at my computer this past week and just started writing those 25 points out. I took what Scripture says and then added a few things to it, just my own thoughts. So if you'll follow along in your Bible... I'll pull them out one by one for you. Be sincere. Then I added to that, nobody likes somebody that's fake, and you can't keep it up forever anyway. Number two, hate what is evil. Tell people if they're doing evil things. You don't have to condone it. Three, cling to what is good. Affirm in people the things that you see them doing that you like. Four, be devoted to one another. There is a place for loyalty. Sometimes people treat you bad because they've had a bad day. So be devoted to one another. Five, honor one another. Expect the best from them. Six, never lack zeal. You don't have to be a pushover. Seven, serve the Lord. Remember, he is number one in every situation. Eight, be joyful in hope. Don't give up. Nine, be patient in affliction. Don't give up. See how those two go together in the good times and the bads? Bads, the bad don't give up. You remain faithful in it. Number 10, be faithful in prayer. We'll come back to that one in just a little bit. Number 11, share with God's people. Let others help with the conflict. 12, practice hospitality. Reach out to others when they are struggling. 13, bless those that persecute you. This is a hard one, but it matters. Reach out to them. 14, rejoice with those who rejoice. Celebrate other people's victories and kill your own selfishness. 15. Mourn with those who mourn. Hurt with those that have been hurt. 16. Live in harmony. Work at getting along. 17. Don't be proud. God hates that and he will knock you down a notch or two. 18. Don't be conceited. Everyone else hates that and they'll knock you down a notch or two. 19. Associate with people in low positions. 
Heaven will be equal for everyone. So let's let it be that way on earth. 20. Don't repay evil for evil. God will take care of that. 21. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. People are watching you. It's easier to do what's right than what's wrong. Live at peace with everyone. Be the person that everybody likes. Now let me use just the illustration of high school for you with this. Prom was last night, so different things happening within the high school. It ought to be the goal of every freshman in high school to finish out their four years as the person that everybody likes. But a lot of students will approach that saying, I want to attach to this group or that group or this group or some other group. Maybe they want to be a jock. Maybe they want to be in music. Maybe they want to be in drama. And they want that to be their only social connection. And at the end of four years, those people will say, we really liked them, but nobody else did. It really should be the goal of every high school student to say at the end of four years, I was liked by everybody. I reached out to everybody, no matter who they were. And if that's a pattern in high school, then carry it on into every other part of your life so that you're that person that folks look at and say, everybody liked them. There was nobody that didn't. That is just a life ambition that matters. Verse, or number 23, don't take revenge. God will take care of that. This one bears repeating. Remember, number 20 said, don't repay evil for evil. God will take care of that. See how God drives points home? Number 24, do not be overcome with evil. Keep Satan at arm's length or longer. You don't know how powerful he is. 25, overcome evil with good. At the end of the day, ask if God won more than he lost through you. 25 points for how to deal with difficult people. And if you will apply them in your life, then you can begin to win those battles, those struggles. Understanding this, the struggle really is not between you and somebody else. It's between you and the Lord because God wants to see what you're going to do with it. We spend a great deal of time trying to change other people's behavior, wanting them to change the way they act towards us. I said this last week as we were talking about different family applications of this, when it looks like relationships have gotten to a place where they cannot be healed. When we spend all of our time trying to force somebody else's behavior by constantly changing ours, we will be frustrated and so will they. You cannot force somebody else's behavior by constantly changing yours. All you can do is say, I am going to live in a way that is good and pleasing to the Lord. As much as it depends on me, I will do everything that I can to get along with everybody. That's between myself and God. Now, here's the way that works. I said this last week. Let me drive it home a little bit. If you have somebody in your life that is inherently a jerk and you are always trying to change your behavior that they might not treat you like a jerk anymore, it isn't going to work because they're a jerk. That's it. All you can do is say, I am going to focus on my relationship with God. And hopefully, prayerfully, that will begin to change them because they will see something within you that they desire, something different about you. And then they begin to make the changes in their lives that are necessary. This is about you and God more than it is about you and somebody else. So you have to focus on the Lord that way. When you do, it begins to bleed over into every other relationship. You begin to see it working everywhere. Like this. Maybe you do have people in your life at work that are very hard to get along with. Maybe they are the people that tell you how you do everything wrong or it's the boss that belittles you in front of everybody. Well, the Bible has specific things to say about that relationship. 
Let me show it to you. We're going to go to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 5. Again, these are the Apostle Paul's words. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Typically, within modern-day Christianity, we skip over that passage because it has the word slaves and master in it. And we look at those and think to ourselves, well, I'm not a slave and I'm not a master, and that relationship doesn't work. Well, it is wrong for us to skip over that because there is actually an application of it. When Paul wrote these words, he was talking about a group of people that were referred to as bond servants or bond slaves. This was not an application of armies that went into foreign countries, captured those people and brought them back, and they lived as slaves. A bond servant or a bond slave was somebody that willingly entered the relationship. It might be that they owed a great deal of money to somebody and they had no way of paying it back. So instead of continuing to try to pay it back, they said, I will become your bond servant. When that happened, when a man made that type of an arrangement, his wife also became a bond slave, and so did his children. He said, I will enter into this relationship until the debt is paid. With that came other perks, actually. That man would agree to take care of his family. He would agree to educate his children. He would agree to take care of all of their financial needs. It was a reciprocal, mutual relationship. In the book of Leviticus, you can actually read the rules that surround this type of thing. So here's what would happen. Somebody would come to another person and say, I want to become your bondservant. The master in that situation would take the bondservant out into the city courts where there was a big pole, grab them by the earlobe, put their earlobe up against the pole, and then they would drive a spike through their earlobe and then hang an earring in it afterwards. That earring signified a bondservant. Usually, that earring would tell you who they were the bond slave of. It was a physical, visible sign of the relationship. So, today when you see a man with an earring, it is a really good indicator that they have entered into a bondservant relationship. That's the only thing that I can figure. And I got to thinking about that this past week. There is only one man on the staff here at the church that has earrings, and it may be that he's wanting everybody to know that he is my bond servant. Hmm. Where is Matt Warner? I, I, there he is, sitting in the back, boldly raising his hand, and he's thinking to himself, yep, that's true if you're going to pay for the education of my children and all my other bills. There is actually, in Scripture, this whole relationship as it is laid out. Paul's teaching is this. If you're in that relationship and you have willingly entered it, then you serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord. Folks, if you have willingly accepted a job someplace, you serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord. Whatever job you are in, it is the same as my job or Matt's job or Deanie's job or Beth's job or Sharon's job. It is a ministry wherever you are at. And it is about you representing Christ that's what it's all about. 
So if there are difficult people that you have to deal with, it is your faith that becomes a reflection there. That's what they need to see. And by the way, Paul goes on to say, if you're not the servant or the slave in that situation, but you're the employer, the same thing is true for you. You treat your employees in such a way that it reflects your relationship with Christ. No boss wants to be the ogre. No employee wants to be the one that the boss is trying to get rid of. And if both sides of the table are saying, we are going to do this as if we were doing it for the Lord, then it works. And it is all a reflection of the relationship that we have with God. It begins to erase difficult situations because you're simply doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. As much as it depends on you, you're getting along with everybody. Working your way through those 25 points. So it works in the workplace, works in other relationships too, like relationships within the church. There can be, this is shocking to some people, there can be difficult relationships even within a church. It shouldn't be that way, but it is. The Bible has to speak very pointedly about it. You know, there's a, an old camp song that goes like this. Betty Ward's helped me with it a couple times now, so I'll have her help me with it again. They will know we are Christians by, by our love. And that ought to be what the church is about. They will know we are Christians by our love. But sometimes people walk into church and they say, I don't love those people. I don't even like those people. I don't want to worship with those folks. I don't want them in my church. And that kind of a mentality can permeate an entire congregation if we're not careful. Difficult relationships can make its way or make their way into the confines of God's church, the bride of Christ. And so we have to work hard to deal with those even within here. I had two conversations this past week, both of them, interestingly enough, with ladies that want to come to church. But they said, there's people there that I just can't get along with. And so I'm not going to come. One of those ladies actually said, there's people there that don't like me, so I can't come. That's not the way it should be. We don't have to condone sin, not ever. But as people come into the church, they need to be accepted and they need to be loved. And the difficulty of every other relationship outside of the church doesn't matter. In this situation, God says, I want you to love one another. Listen to this. We're going to go back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The Apostle's way of saying, get along, because God wants you to, and that's the way it should be. So when we start thinking, there are people coming into the church that, that I don't think should be here, what do we do about that? If we know how they live outside of the church, should we do something about that? If we know the things that they say outside of the church, should we keep them out of here? Well, listen to what Jesus says about it. It was a real issue at the beginning of the church, even before the church started. So Jesus gave great teaching on it. This is Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 24. Jesus told them another parable, speaking to the disciples. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling up the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The disciples didn't understand that. They really didn't. They had to ask for some clarification, and Jesus granted it to them. Listen to this, verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out his kingdom, everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Fill summation of that. It's God's responsibility to do the sorting. You don't worry about it. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Welcome everyone. Accept them and let God do the work that only God can. So we can say all of that. and We can talk about 25 points in the book of Romans and so on. And it still leaves us saying, on a day-to-day basis, because tomorrow I have to deal with it, How do I handle the difficult people that I have to deal with every day? Well, let me give you just a a little gem that you can take with you as we close this service out. This is found in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. These are Jesus' words at the Sermon on the Mount because he knew this issue was real. He says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Here's what Jesus would teach about dealing with difficult people. You pray for them. And you pray very specifically. A lot of us are pretty good at praying for the people that persecute us, praying for the difficult people in our life. We pray things like this. Lord, if it is possible to have a sinkhole open up underneath them and swallow them into the bowels of the earth, that would be wonderful. Those are the types of prayers we pray. That's not what God's talking about. Jesus says you pray prayers of blessing on them. You pray that God will shine his light upon them. You pray that God will change them in ways that only God can. You pray for them. So today as we close out this service, I want us to start just like that. And then I encourage you throughout the course of this week to follow that same pattern. Pray every day for the difficult people that you have to deal with. Pray every day for the ones that are a struggle for you. It will change your countenance towards them and it will very probably change their countenance towards you. You pray for them, whoever they are. I know that probably 95% of the people that are sitting here 
can make a quick list of people that are difficult to deal with in your life. So I want you to make that list real fast, just two or three people, the ones that would sit up at the top of the list. And then if you're willing, I'd ask you to stand up right where you're at, and we are going to pray together for those folks. Now, I'm not going to ask you to throw their names out, not at all. That's between you and God. But I'm going to ask you to pray for them silently, and then start a pattern that will continue on through the rest of this week. And you watch what will happen, because God knows what he's doing. And he often works very small miracles that turn into huge miracles in our lives. So if you've got a list like that, would you just stand up right where you're at? We're going to spend a moment or two just praying silently on your own. And then I'll close us. Let's go before the Lord. Well, Father in heaven, you've heard these names. I know that none of them are a shock or a surprise to you. Fully aware of that. I'm also aware that some of these people were sent by you just to see what we would do and how we would handle ourselves. Lord, it is my prayer as a church that we will always bring glory to you in those situations. It's my prayer individually that the same will be true, that you'll be glorified by how we deal with difficult people. Lord, help us to love you with all that we have, but then open our eyes to the fact that we need to love some of these other folks with all that you are. Would you help us do that? Father, this is tough stuff. Things that we would just as soon ignore. But I know that it matters in your kingdom. So help us live it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now carry that pattern on. Whoever it is, you carry that pattern on that you make the changes you need to make and God bless them where that's appropriate. And God does stuff like that. Sometimes you find yourself thinking, boy, I just don't have anybody like that in my life. Well, it just might be that you're that person in somebody else's life. (laughs) So accept their prayers as they are offered for you as well. It's a good, good teaching. Now, as we offer our invitation, if you'd like to talk to somebody about a relationship with Jesus Christ or a relationship with the church, or if you'd like to pray with somebody or for somebody, you can do that at this time. Brian's over here at the door of the prayer room. Just go over there and tell him what's on your heart. He'll make sure that your needs get met. The rest of us will sing loud, help extend this invitation. Why don't you stand with us?